Good evening. Um, welcome to the um, pen reading in, um, in honor of uh, the 100th anniversary of Robert Benchley. I'm Calvin Trillin. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about, about uh, Benchley before we start. I'm not actually going to say a few words. I'm going to read a few words. Uh, this is from an introduction of, uh, in one of Benchley's books by Frank Sullivan about uh, the sort of topics Benchley wrote about. He pays his respects and disrespects to the Heath Hen, to Gilbert and Sullivan audiences, bird fanciers, Sir Walter Scott, buttered toast, to people who applaud too long at theaters, and men who run around Central Park Reservoir every morning. This is amazing. This has to be 30, 40 years ago. To customers who are overbearing toward waiters, and to musicians who take a pleasant tune and arrange it until it is mangled all out of recognition. In common with many of his fellow Americans, he had great difficulty picking up change at movie theater windows, and, it's, and it seemed to him that French pastry trays were rigged up just on purpose to make a selection excessively difficult. As for mankind's prospects, he thought man would eventually become prettier but would have no legs. <laughs> Every sentence the reader traversed with him was apt to become an adventure. You never knew when you started where you would end, but then neither did Mr. Benchley. Mr. Costello, in Bayou Christmas Presents Early, fell into a pulp machine and was swashed around until all they had to do was dry him out and they could have printed the Sunday Times on him. A lesser man would have had mis left Mr. Costello with, that, with this requiem, not Mr. Benchley, who continues, in fact, that is just what they did do, and it was one of the best editions of the Sunday Times that was r ever run off the presses. It had human interest. <laughs> he, um, he did not take the gadget age or our vaunted civilization lying down. He battled it to the end and sometimes gave as good as he got, though he usually came off second best in his encounters with machines, income taxes, banks, and daylight saving time. He did not like daylight saving time, but as he explains, he did not even like time. <laughs> and his friends could add that he didn't think much of daylight either. I have to say, I don't know what reminds me, I think my favorite Benchley title uh, is the book that he called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or David Copperfield. <laughs> His lance pierced more shams than all the preachments of the indignation boys and the do-gooders. He was the sanest of men and saw things clearly. He had humility, honesty, and integrity, and he had a great, wholesome, hearty laugh, which merely to hear made you smile and feel better. One of the chief troubles of the American theater today is that Bob Benchley's laugh is no longer heard in it. To be in his company made you feel happy. He had a faculty for making you feel that you were far more brilliant and personable than you probably were. Uh, in fact, Walcott Gibbs uh, in... Um, in his collection, uh, More in Sorrow, has a piece on Benchley, and he makes the same point about Benchley. When you were with him in the wonderful junk shop he operated at the Royalton 
in 21 or in less fashionable saloons, which had the simple merit of staying open all night. You had a very warm and encouraging feeling that you were a funnier man than you'd previously suspected. The things you said sounded quite a lot better than they really were, and such was the miracle of his sympathy and courteous hope. They often actually were pretty good. He wanted his guests to feel that they were succeeding socially, and he did his best to make it easy for them. The truth, of course, was that Benchley himself maneuvered these conversations, tactfully providing most of the openings for wit, but the effect was that people were mysteriously improved in his company, surprisingly at home on a level of easy charm of which nobody could have dreamed they were capable. The willingness to play straight man to amateur but hopeful comedians is rather rare in the world he inhabited. Uh, just to show you how rare it is, uh, none of us who are reading tonight are that way at all. Um, and we intend all of us to sit stony-faced while the other person reads. Um, I'm, not, um, I'm not actually going to introduce uh, all of us tonight. I was told not to introduce people. I don't think the implication was not that we were the sort of people of whom it is said he needs no introduction. Um, in fact, the implication was some of us desperately need um, an introduction. Uh, but, um, but it is not part of your ticket, and I'm not going to introduce anybody. Um, um, I know when, I, when somebody is about to introduce me uh, in a speech or a reading, and uh, he says that he's having trouble thinking of what to say, I always say, uh, well, I don't like a fuss made or anything like that. Probably something simple like, um, not since Mark Twain. Um, <laughs> Um, but tonight there'll be no introductions at all, uh, and so of the readers uh, who are uh, I, I, who are going to read uh, and will just follow me up here, uh, I will only say two things of them: one, they will read in alphabetical order, and two, not since Mark Twain. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here, proud to be here, because when I was a, in high school, my heroes were Robert, Robert Benchley and uh, Willie Mays. In fact, I once delivered a paper to the Modern Language Association called The Say Hey Kids, uh, Benchley and Mays and the bimodality of the archetype as seen in my childhood, which this will give you some idea how very special it was. <laughs> and I'm not used to speaking in front of acad academicians, and I was worried about how it would go over. And afterwards, a, an academician came up to me and said, I understand you know Ed McMahon. <laughs> and I said, well, no, I don't know Ed McMahon. I don't know that Anyone can claim to <laughs> know Ed McMahon in the full meaning of the word, but I have sat next to Ed McMahon, and he said, well, the next time you see him, I have a girlfriend, I want you to ask him how to get her on Star Search. And it went, went on from there, and well, I went, then the next time I was chatting with Ed, 
during a commercial, and I said, uh, Ed, uh, I talked to somebody the other day who said he had a girlfriend and wanted to know how to get her own star search. And Ed said, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you'll notice at the end of the program there's a uh, phone number that they list on, on the thing, and that's all he would tell me, so I'm afraid to go back to the MLA. But I'm willing to stand up here, assuming that nobody will try to drag me into anything like that, and uh, talk about Benchley, who I think is worth noting was not unpolitical. I mean, he didn't write about politics very much, but he picketed against, um, uh, the, you know, the uh, Sacco and Vanzetti, uh, uh, the railroading of Sacco and Vanzetti, and, uh, and one thing or another, he even testified in the in some stage of the Sacco and Vanzetti uh, uh, legal proceedings with regard to having heard in a, in a country club uh, somewhere that uh, Judge Thayer had said he was going to get those bastards or something like that. Anyway, basically he was always involved in stuff, was involved to some extent in stuff like that and wanted to be involved in more serious things than he was, wanted to write about serious things and was sort of self-conscious about being so funny. Therefore, I think that... Uh, I'm going to read for the next half hour from the works of Salman Rushdie. <laughs> uh, now, actually, all I want to say is that there's certain consolation in the whole thing about Salman Rushdie to me, which is that there are apparently people in the world who act worse than Southern white people. Um, It, it takes a lot of pressure, a lot of the pressure off of me. <laughs> um, I, a friend of mine, speaking of Southern white people, a friend of mine called me up the other day from Washington who knows B.B. King. And he went to a party for B.B. King and said, I'm going to name you two names of people in Washington, and I want you to tell me which one was jamming with B.B. King. Ron Brown or Lee Atwater. Now, as we all know, who have seen, there was a tagline in the New York Times not long ago, Lee Atwater, blues man. Uh, as we know, it was not, since Ron Brown is uh, a black Democrat, he can't afford to sing the blues. But uh, since Lee Atwater is a white Republican, he can do whatever thing he wants to. And I sort of resent it. Anything he wants to except drink and womanize, I guess. So. But I never heard of a blues man who didn't drink and womanize. Which leads me to another aspect of Benchley, which uh, is that I was so impressed by Robert Benchley. I used to read Robert Benchley in high school, and I was uh, over, I mean, he affected me the way that I suppose drugs affected a later generation because it seemed to me he could get out of things. I read where he sent a, uh, he owed money to the IRS that he could not pay, so he sent a check made out to the IRS to Macy's and a check made out to Macy's to the IRS. And, uh, and by the time it got straightened out, he had the money to pay, which is, uh, you know, he also once wrote a parody of The Good Earth by Pearl Buck, which uh, set in China, and they there was a character in there named Huang the Gong, which I always appreciated. Uh, <laughs> and I read a lot about Benchley, and I applied for a college scholarship 
and in the application I said that my ambition was to be a humorist and bon vivant <laughs> like Robert Benchley, which why my father let me do that, I don't know. I later came to find out that bon vivant means good liver and therefore is a contradiction in terms. But uh, I went on to tell that story once to um, Haywood Hale Broom, the first person I ever met who knew Robert Benchley. I told that story about applying for the application, applying for the scholarship, and Haywood Hale Broom said, bon vivant, that's a good word for an old soak. Now, I don't think Benchley would mind us bringing that up because it's so unfashionable these days to drink. Therefore, in Benchley's honor, I'm going to read this piece I wrote about whiskey. The best whiskey I've, ever, I've tasted is McAllen Royal Wedding. It belongs to Greg James, but Patrick Lynch, who gave it to him, has agreed to keep it at his house because Greg, being from Memphis originally, would be liable to sit down some night and drink the whole bottle, which, except at the time, would be a shame. Or maybe, this just occurred to me, the point is that Greg and I together would be liable to. I never drank a whole bottle of whiskey by myself, and now I never will because I have come to realize that even smaller portions can do me harm. But once in a Knoxville motel, I did drink a fifth down to Lim Motlow's hat. Lim Motlow's picture, as I would not have to inform a cu cultured person, appears well down the side of a Jack Daniels bottle. I had decided ahead of time that his hat was far enough, and oddly enough, it was. So I didn't feel entirely unfunctional the next day, if it was the next day. <laughs> and oddly enough, it was. Since then, I have limited my horizons as to whiskey. It can be abused is the thing, and without much effort. There is an old country song, How Can Whiskey Only Six Years Old Whip a Man Who's 43? A blind blues singer in Mississippi threw up the half pint of wild turkey with which I had plied him. He, he had said he needed a little lift up to get my nerves started, but he had not been used to, used to whiskey that good and had taken it too fast. Here's what his friend, another blues singer, remarked. Can't drink like a hog. I don't care who you with, meaning me. You got to drink like folks. I don't hang out with folks who would even consider drinking a whole who would even consider drinking a whole fifth of whiskey if it weren't as good as that royal wedding. It's a blend from McAllen's best barrel of 1948, birth year of Prince Charles, and of 1961 of Princess Di. Two hearts in but a single malt. Uh, the McAllen, which is saying a great deal, was distinctly uh, I just skipped apart. I never had any use for royalty before, but this whiskey had levels and then levels. We'd sit and sip it and stare off and think, which is one reason it would be a shame to drink so much of it at once that you'd only have the impression you were thinking. My friend Gerald Duff once heard yet another blues singer stop in the middle of a song and holler, it's hard for a drunk man to think, <laughs> which is true enough but sometimes it seems deceptively easy. 
When I was a boy, my mother told me that nobody liked the taste of strong drink. People just drank it to get tiddly. That was well known, she said. Given the nature of one generation to another, I dare say there are some things I have misrepresented just as grossly to my children, but I never meant to. Which is not to say that my mother's point of view was entirely ill-founded. Liquor killed her father, after all. We were a teetotaling Southern Methodist household. We lived in a dry county, but we'd have been dry if we'd lived in Gomorrah. My mother would do nearly anything for us, though. And once my sister Susan had to have beer for her hair. The girls in her class were using it for luster. To get beer around Atlanta in those days, you not only had to leave DeKalb County, you had to enter either a bar or a package store. A bar was out. And what if the preacher should drive past just as my mother was walking into a package store? Well, my mother figured that he would know she wasn't depraved enough to go into a package store for the purpose of, attain of obtaining liquor to drink. Not that he wouldn't know it anyway, knowing her, but you never could tell if she was seen going in there with her 15-year-old son. So she made me go with her. I didn't want to, is putting it mildly. We're just going to buy a beer for my daughter's hair, my mother told everyone whose attention she could catch. <laughs> we don't drink at all in our house. We don't believe in it. We know nobody really likes the taste of it. They just drink it to get tiddly. This is my son. He's 15. This was not easy for my mother, who was shy with people she didn't know. And we weren't even in the package store yet. <laughs> we were still out on the sidewalk. I think the reason Susan, my sister Susan and I are not dry in our generation is that we figured there was nothing we could do drunk. You'll throw up on your pretty party dress, was one thing my mother told Susan. That could be as embarrassing as what my mother would do sober. I can no longer swear to that. Once at a wedding reception in Fort Worth, Texas, I did the limbo while carrying, I may have forgotten she was there, my sister-in-law Robin on my shoulders. Even without a rider, I don't limbo all that well. She banged the back of her head and cried. She was only about 15. There's an old Irish song. Whiskey, you're the devil, you're leading me astray over hills and mountains, and to America. Doesn't it taste good, though, and haven't I had some lovely times when it was served? I have drunk it with ball players, law officers, politicians, musicians, and art critics. I'd have far fewer stories to tell today if I had avoided it. Of course, I would remember even more of them if I'd had less of it. <laughs> I like gin. Much to be said for it. I like vodka. Beer is the thing on some occasions. But whiskey is more like food than white liquor is and more essential than beer is. It has a roundness in the mouth to be as spiky as it is. One reason I have to watch it is that I like it diluted only, diluted only gradually by ice. My friend Slick Lawson holds that you can't get a hangover if you stick resolutely to Jack Daniels because it's filtered through charcoal. My friend Dan Jenkins controls damage by having only JB and water. To the English, whiskey means scotch, with water, no ice. I know it suggests a lack of character, but I fancy bourbon, scotch, Irish, 
The word whiskey is from the Gaelic whisga beata, water of life, close friends, comma, Canadian, Tennessee, and rye. I know the history of writers and drink. Many of the friends with whom I used to partake most thirstily have quit altogether because they got dependent on it, or it sapped their energies the next day, or their doctors warned them for the last time. One of them almost bled to death. It's a greater national health hazard than any other drug is. I don't drink in the daytime, and I feel a good deal younger during those hours if, I'd stay, if I have stayed away from it entirely for a while. Sometimes when I'm feeling run down, it doesn't even taste good to me, so that I don't have any more after trying another swallow to make sure. <laughs> Taking everything so far into consideration, I still like it. The only time I ever felt very close to my father, a woman friend of mine says, was in the church just before my wedding. We had some whiskey. In New Delhi, every Sunday, thousands of devotees bring bottles of Indian whiskey with names like Double Dog, Drum Beater, and Blackbird to the temple of Bairon, a Hindu deity. His image is black-skinned, it has a sinister mustache, and it holds in its four hands a demon's severed head, a bowl, a bottle of whiskey, and a club. Temple workers pour the worshippers' whiskey into the idol's gaping mouth, and it dribbles down into a tray below, which seems a shame. In Hinduism, says a religious scholar named Dr. Lokesh Chandra, the divine and the satanic are not distinguished. Individuals have an element of both. If your child is very ill, you might go to Bairon, this god, and say, you have the experience of all the terrible calamities, so take me out of mine. Bairon is the ferocious aspect of the divine. He is pleased only with things that are not normal, dash, human blood, whiskey, and so on. There's a country song in that. Human blood, whiskey, and so on. That's about all I got to go on. The worst whiskey I ever tasted was at 4 o'clock in the morning on the front porch of a man in Florida who was reputed to have a wonderful coon dog. I've forgotten now what the dog's great distinction was said to be, but Sports Illustrated had suggested I look into it. We were out in the woods for six hours with the dog and the man's son, who was about 15. The man said of his son, he's a real old hunter, ain't you, Forrest? Forrest didn't want to go. More interested in girls these days, the man said. Forrest wouldn't even talk to us, and his father had to keep nagging him, trying to get him to show some interest. Forrest would make disrespectful noises under his breath. It was muddy and overcast. The dog led us into nearly unnegotiable, brushy lowlands. And just as the man was saying, I wouldn't feed a dog that runs trash, which was to say a dog that pursued anything other than raccoons, his dog led us through briars to a hollow log that turned out to have a possum in it. Then the dog was off on the scent of something which, even which, when treed after a long, scrabbling, sloshy chase, turned out to be a house cat. You'd have to have been around coon hunters to know how bad that was. Forrest went off home by himself. 
The father and the dog and I went back too. We sat on the front porch looking at the morning mist. I told him I would come back some other night when the weather and the moon were better. But he both knew I would, we both knew I wouldn't. I had never had a night when my own stock had sunk quite that low in front of key witnesses, but I knew I probably would. The man brought out an old syrup bottle with a cork in it. No tax stamp on this, the man said. It wasn't the proverbial white lightning. From what I was able to see, it was dark yellowish. It was harsh enough, Lord knows, yet it tasted semi-sweetly of corn among who knew what other things. And there was something kind of oily about it. It was pretty good. <laughs> and now I'm going to read a little Benchley. This is op opera synopses, some simple outlines of grand opera plots for home study. First one is Die Meister Genossenschaft. Scene, the forests of Germany, time, antiquity. Cast, Strudel, god of rain, Beso. Schmaltz, god of slight drizzle. Immergluck, goddess of the six primary colors. Ludwig das Eiweiss, the knight of the iron duck. And the woodpecker, which is a soprano. Argument. The basis of Die Meister Genossenschaft is an old legend of Germany which tells how the whale got his stomach. <laughs> Act 1, the Rhine at low tide just below Weltschnoffen. Immergluck has grown weary of always sitting on the same rock with the same fishes swimming by every day and sends for Schwul to suggest something to do. Schwul asks her, how she would like to have passed before her all the wonders of the world fashioned by the hand of man. Hand of man. She says, rotten. He then suggests that Ringblatz, son of Flucht, be made to appear before her and fight a mortal combat with the iron duck. This pleases Immergluck, and she summons to her the four dwarfs. Hot water, cold water, cool, and cloudy. She bids them bring Ringblatz to her. They refuse because Flukes has at one time rescued them from being buried alive by acorns. And in a rage, Immergluck strikes them all dead with a thunderbolt. Act 2. <laughs> a mountain pass. Repenting of her deed, Immergluck has sought advice of the giants, Ophen and Besitz. And they tell her what she must that she must procure the magic zither, which confers upon its owner the power to go to sleep while apparently carrying on a conversation. <laughs> this magic zither has been hidden for 300 centuries in an old bureau drawer guarded by the iron duck. And although many have attempted to rescue it, all have died of a strange ailment, just as success was within their grasp. But Immergluck calls to her side Dompfboot, the tinsmith of the gods, and bids him make for her a torn helm or invisible cap, which will enable her to talk to people without their understanding a word she says. <laughs> for a dollar and a half extra, Dompf Boot throws in a magic ring, which renders its wearer insensible. 
<laughs> Thus armed, Immergluck starts out for Valhalla, humming to herself. Act three. The forest before the iron duck's bureau drawer. Merglitz, who has up till this time held his peace, now descends from a balloon and demands the rescue of Betty. It has been the will of Wotan that Merglitz and Betty should meet on Earth and hate each other like poison. But Zweibach, the druggist of the gods, has disobeyed and concocted a love potion, which has rendered the young couple very unpleasant company. <laughs> Wotan, enraged, destroys them with a protracted heat spell. Encouraged by this sudden turn of affairs, Immergluck comes to Earth in a boat drawn by four white Holsteins <laughs> and seated alone on a rock, remembers aloud to herself the days when she was a girl. Pilgrims from Algenblick, on their way to worship at the shrine of Schmur, hear the sound of reminiscence coming from the rock and stop in their march to sing a hymn of praise for the drying up of the crops. They do not recognize Immergluck as she has her hair done differ differently <laughs> and think that she is a beggar girl selling pencils. In the meantime, Ragel, the paper cutter of the gods, <laughs> has fashioned himself a sword on the forge of Schmaltz and has called the weapon assistance in emergency. Armed with assistance in emergency, he comes to earth determined to slay the Iron Duck and carry off the beautiful Irma. But Frimsel overhears the plan and <laughs> has a drink brewed, which is given to Ragel in a golden goblet, and which, when drunk, makes him forget his past and causes him to believe that he is Schnorr, the god of fun. I've believed that many a time. While laboring under his spell, Ragel has a funeral pyre built on the summit of a high mountain and, after lighting it, climbs on top of it with a mandolin, which he plays until he is consumed. Immergluck never marries. Thank you. was Roy Blunt, <laughs> since Bud didn't say who he was, and I'm Veronica Gann. And uh, first I'm going to read a piece of my own, and then I'm going to explain um, how I stole everything in it from Benchley, and then I'm going to read something of Benchley's. <coughs> uh, this begins with a, a quote from the New York Times. This is like kind of far back in history, so. Uh, President Reagan resembled a bashful cowboy the other day when he was asked about the apparent collapse of the Star Wars talks with the Soviet Union. At his side, murmuring something through the fixed smile that seems required of American political spouses, Mr. Reagan was overheard prompting him, Mrs. Reagan was overheard prompting him, we're doing everything we can. <laughs> Out there in the President's mountainside retreat, Subjects such as the Soviet Union seem to haunt Mr. Reagan the way vows to read Proust dog other Americans at leisure. <laughs> and then a very brilliant person writing in the Village Voice said, this may be the only time in history in which the words Mr. Reagan and read Proust will appear in the same <laughs> sentence. <clears throat> 
I glanced over at the dame sleeping next to me, and all of a sudden I wanted some other dame, the way you see Mr. Reagan on TV and all of a sudden get a yen to read Proust. <laughs> Not that she wasn't attractive with rumpled blonde curls and a complexion so transparent you could read Proust through it. That is, as long as her cute habit of claiming a tax deduction for salon facials didn't turn up in some IRS stool pigeon's memo to Mr. Reagan. It was taking her a little more time to wake up than it would take Mr. Reagan's horse to read Proust. <laughs> After I'd showered and shaved and put on an old pair of pants that wouldn't lead anybody to believe my tailor was unduly influenced by having read Proust, I went back over to the bed where I wasn't exactly planning to say my prayers, Mr. Reagan or no Mr. Reagan. Mr. Reagan, she whispered, fluttering her lashes, and I trusted the dazed quizzical act about as much as if she told me she could read Proust without moving her lips. So I slugged her a couple of times, and I'd have slugged her a couple of more times if something hadn't told me I'd get a colder shoulder than a cult nut insisting you could read Proust as anagrams predicting the end of the world during the administration of Mr. Reagan. She chuckled insanely like Mr. Reagan looped on something you wouldn't want to drink while you read Proust. <laughs> then she touched me with the practiced efficiency of a protocol officer steering some terribly junior diplomat through a receiving line to meet Mr. Reagan. And funny, but I got the idea she wasn't suggesting we curl up and read Proust. As her hand slid along my thigh, I noticed that she wore a ring with a diamond the size of the brain of a guy who read Proust all the time. <laughs> and if I'd been Mr. Reagan, I'd have been dumb enough to buy her another one to go with it. But the distance between a private eye's income and Mr. Reagan's was a gaping chasm big enough to crawl into and read Proust. I wondered if Mr. Reagan worked this hard for his dough as I maneuvered her into the Kama Sutra position known as too busy to read Proust. <laughs> I woke to the phone shrilling in my ear like the hotline warning Mr. Reagan that 10,000 Russian missiles hurtling over Western Europe weren't RSVPing for a let's get together once a week and read Proust party. <laughs> I let it ring, hoping the caller would decide to quit and go reread Proust, and wondering why dames always ran out on me without saying goodbye, why they didn't stick around with loyal, wifely, fixed smiles the way they did for hotshots like Mr. Reagan. Then I found myself getting a little weepy at a sentimental, popular tune that was drifting through the Venetian blinds. The connoisseur who's read Proust does it. Mr. Reagan with a boost does it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. Read Proust where each duke and compte does it. Mr. Reagan with a prompt does it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. I've read Proust, wished that he had done it through a small aperture. Has Leningrad done it? Mr. Reagan's not sure. Some who read Proust say Odette did it. Mr. Reagan with a safety net did it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. Cherchez la femme, I said to myself. A phrase I'd picked up on a case where the judge gave clemency to a homicidal maniac for having read Proust. 
And then I went out in the rain to a bookstore where I usually browsed for dames and found one perusing Mr. Reagan's latest autobiography. Just for fun, I looked over her shoulder and read, for a long time before I met Nancy, I used to go to bed early. <laughs> Now, the thing that I want to say that I, I learned, and one almost could use the word stole, uh, from Robert Benchley was a thing that Bud referred to uh, when he spoke about the um, quality that Benchley had of not knowing where a sentence was going, which was very wonderful because most writers go back and erase all sign that, that, that such a you know, problem ever happened to them. Um, and I think the piece that Roy read from Benchley conveys that in the just desperation to uh, conclude these plots that he didn't really understand but was pretending he understood. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I think a lot of writers uh, go through this. Certainly, I went through it with this piece because I was trying to write sentences which were said to be impossible to write. But I think to most writers, almost any kind of sentence is impossible to write. And uh, you're going along and you, you know enough to begin the sentence, but you don't really know enough to finish the sentence or to know how you're going to finish the sentence. And so you're kind of lurching along and there's a kind of momentum that a sentence must be finished that's pulling you along, but you don't, and you start shoving things in, kind of praying that this, some of them will buy you some time, and then, <laughs> then you hope that maybe if you shove in enough things, maybe one of them will look like it's pointing toward an exit sign and will allow you to say something you can finally put a period afterward that might not make sense, but will at least sound like the end of a sentence. Um, and this is something that Benchley not only went through, like many writers, but had the genius to allow to remain in the feeling of his sentences so that uh, he was like somebody who says hello and in the way you can hear his breathing inside the hello, um, you know that he knows that by the time he gets to the, end, to the end of the word hello, some immense void is going to open up and nobody will have anything else to say. <laughs> and <laughs> this, if you just kind of leave that in your writing, which was something it would never have occurred to me to do, because everybody's tendency is to go back and erase all signs of doubt from their writing, um, you sometimes can end with something that sounds kind of unusual, even though it might not make an enormous amount of sense. So um, the piece of Benchley's that I'm going to read, uh, which is said to be in a to be a parody, it's in a book of collection of parodies, but I think of it not as a parody, but as a great um, avant-garde work of its time about writing that um, doesn't really know anything, but is wonderful anyway. Uh, it's based on a department that the New York Times Book Review used to have, I'm sure some of you here will remember it, I do, where people wrote in and asked for um, information about scraps of poetry that they remembered, or can anybody identify the author of so-and-so. <clears throat> and uh, this piece is called Literary Lost and Found Department. Old Black Tilly, H.G.L. writes in, 
When I was a little girl, my nurse used to recite a poem something like the following, as near as I can remember. I wonder if anyone can give me the missing lines. Old Black Tilly lived in the dell, hey ho with a rum tum tum. <clears throat> something, something, something like a lot of hell, hey ho with a rum tum tum. She wasn't very something, and she wasn't very fat, but. <clears throat> I'm sorry that I spelt the word. J.R.A. writes, can anyone help me out by furnishing the last three words to the following stanza, which I learned in school, and of which I have forgotten the last three words, thereby driving myself crazy? I'm sorry that I spelt the word, I hate to go above you, because the brown eyes lower fell, because you see, <laughs> blank, blank, blank. <clears throat> God's in his heaven, J-A-E writes in, where did Mark Twain write the following? God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. <laughs> she dwelt beside. NKY writes, can someone locate this for me and tell the author? She dwelt among untrodden ways beside the springs of dove. To me she gave sweet charity. <laughs> but greater far is love. <laughs> the Golden Wedding, KLF writes in, who wrote the following and what does it mean? <laughs> oh, D Golden Wedding. <laughs> oh, D Golden Wedding. Oh, D Golden Wedding, D Golden Golden Wedding. Then, the, then there's the answers section. When, when grandma was a girl, the poem, this is Luther F. Neem from Flushing, Long Island writes in, the poem asked for by EJK was recited at a free soil riot in Ashburg, Kansas in July 1850. It was entitled, and that's the way they did it when grandma was a girl. <laughs> and was written by Bishop Leander B. Rizard. The last line runs, and that's the way they did it when grandma was a girl. Let us then be up and doing. Roger F. Nilkett of Presto, New Jersey writes in, replying to the query in your last issue concerning the origin of the lines, let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. I remember hearing these lines read at a gathering in the Second Baptist Church of Presto, New Jersey when I was a young man by the Reverend Harley N. Ankle. It was said at the time among his parishioners that he himself wrote them and on being questioned on the matter, he did not deny it, simply smiling and saying, I'm glad if you like them. 
They were henceforth known in Presto as Dr. Ankle's verse and were set to music and sung at his funeral. The December Bride, or Old Robin. Charles B. Rennett of Boston, New Hampshire writes in, the whole poem wanted by H.J.O. is as follows and appeared in Hotstetter's Annual in 1843. Twas in the bleak December that I took her for my bride. How well do I remember how she fluttered by my side. My Nellie dear, it was not long before you up and died. And they buried her at 8.30 in the morning. Oh, do not tell me of the charms of maidens far and near. Their charming ways and manners I do not care to hear. For Lucy dear was to me so very, very dear. And they buried her at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> then it's merrily, 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 whoa. To the old gray church they come and go. <laughs> some to be married and some to be buried and old Robin has gone for the mail. <clears throat> I would like to just conclude by repeating my favorite verse from this piece, uh, the last three words of which I believe reflect what all of us who are reading here tonight would like to say to Robert Benchley. I'm sorry that I spelt the word, I hate to go above you, because the brown eyes lower fell, because you see, I love you. <laughs> Thank you. And now uh, Fran Leibowitz is going to read. Hi. Um, there are many reasons um, that uh, I admire Robert Benchley. There are many reasons why I like him. And I feel that there's one very important reason why all of us reading here tonight really like him, and that is because he is dead. <laughs> an attractive quality in any person, <laughs> but particularly in a writer. Um, I'm going to read, um, I, I told Veronica before that um, first I would read a piece by uh, Robert Benchley and then a piece of my own to show what he stole from me. <laughs> but I promise not to make her my straight man, so I won't do that. So first I will read a piece by myself, I mean written by myself, I read both of them by myself. Um, <clears throat> and then I'll read one by Robert Benchley. Um, this piece that I wrote is not much newer than the one I'll be reading by Robert Benchley. <laughs> but it is um, no less dated. Uh, this piece is called Diary of a New York Apartment Hunter. Uh, it's from my last book, uh, Social Studies, and I use the word last in its every sense. not that funny. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Friday. Awakened at the crack of dawn by a messenger bearing this coming Sunday's New York Times real estate section. 
first six apartments gone already. Spend a good 15 minutes dividing the number of New York Times editors into the probable number of people looking for two-bedroom apartments. <laughs> Spend additional half hour wondering how anyone who has a paper to get out every day could possibly have time to keep up 1,100 friendships. Realized this theory not plausible and decided instead that the typesetters all live in co-ops with wood-burning fireplaces. <laughs> Wondered briefly why listings always specify wood-burning fireplaces. <laughs> Decided that, considering the prices they're asking, it's probably just a warning device for those who might otherwise figure what the hell and just burn money. Called VF and inquired politely as to whether anyone in his extremely desirable building had died during the night. <laughs> Reply in the negative. I just don't get it. It's quite a large building and no one in it has died for months. In my tiny little building, they're dropping like flies. made a note to investigate the possibility that high ceilings and decorative moldings prolong life. <laughs> Momentarily chilled by the thought that someone who lives in a worse building than mine is waiting for me to die. <laughs> Cheered immeasurably by realization that A, nobody lives in a worse building than mine, and B, particularly those who are waiting for me to die. Saturday, uptown to look at co-op in venerable midtown building. Met real estate broker in lobby, a Caucasian version of Tokyo Rose. She immediately launched into a description of all the respectably employed people who were waiting in line for this apartment. Showed me living room first. Large, airy, terrific view of well-known discount drugstore. Two bedrooms, sure enough. Kitchen, sort of. When I asked why the present occupant had seen fit to cut three five-foot-high arches out of the inside wall of the master bedroom, she muttered something about cross-ventilation. When I pointed out that there were no windows on the opposite wall, she ostentatiously extracted a sheaf of papers from her briefcase and studied them closely. Presumably these contained the names of all the Supreme Court justices who were waiting for this apartment. Nevertheless, I pressed on and asked her what one might do with three five-foot-high arches in one's bedroom wall. She suggested stained glass. I suggested pews in the living room and services on Sunday. <laughs> she showed me a room she referred to as the master bath. I asked her where the slaves bathed. She rattled her, rattled her papers ominously and showed me the living room again. I looked disgruntled. She brightened and showed me something called a fun bathroom. It had been covered in fabric from floor to ceiling by someone who obviously was not afraid to mix patterns. I informed her unceremoniously that I never again wanted to be shown a fun bathroom. I don't want to have fun in the bathroom. I just want to bathe my slaves. She showed me the living room again. 
Either she just couldn't get enough of that discount drugstore, or she was trying to trick me into thinking there were three living rooms. <clears throat> Impudently, I asked her where one ate, seeing as I had not been shown a dining room, and the kitchen was approximately the size of a brandy snifter. Well, she said, some people use the second bedroom as a dining room. I replied that I needed the second bedroom to write in. This was a mistake because it reminded her of all the ambassadors to the UN on her list of prospective tenants. Well, she said, the master bedroom is rather large. Listen, I said, I already eat on my bed. In a one room, <clears throat> a rent controlled slum apartment, I'll eat on the bed. In an innately priced high maintenance co-op, I want to eat at the table. Call me silly, call me foolish, but that's the kind of girl I am. She escorted me out of the apartment and left me standing in the lobby as she hurried off, anxious no doubt, to call Henry Kissinger and tell him, okay, the apartment was his. <laughs> Sunday. Spent the entire day recovering from a telephone call with the real estate broker, who, in response to my having expressed displeasure at having been shown an apartment in which the closest thing to a closet had been the living room, said, well, Fran, what do you expect for 3500 a month? He hung up before I could tell him that actually, to tell you the truth, for 3500 a month, I expected the Winter Palace. <laughs> Furnished. Not to mention fully staffed. Monday. Looked this morning at the top floor of a building which I have privately christened Uncle Tom's Brownstone. <laughs> One end of the floor slopes sufficiently for me to be able to straighten up. and asked why the refrigerator was in the living room. I was promptly put in my place by the owner, who looked me straight in the eye and said, because it doesn't fit in the kitchen. <laughs> True, I conceded taking a closer look, that is a problem. I'll tell you what, though, and this may not have occurred to you, but that kitchen does fit in the refrigerator. Why don't you try it? I left before he could act on my suggestion and repaired to a phone booth. Mortality rate in VF's building, still amazingly low. <laughs> Called about apartment, listened to today's paper. Was told fixture fee, $100,000. Replied that unless Rembrandt had doodled on the walls, $100,000 wasn't a fixture fee, it was war reparations. Tuesday, let desperation get the best of me and went to see an apartment described as interesting. <laughs> interesting generally means that it has a skylight, no elevator, and they'll throw in the glassine envelopes for free. This one was even more interesting than usual because the broker informed me Jack Kerouac had once lived here. Someone's pulling your leg, I told him. Jack Kerouac's still living here. Wednesday, ran into a casual acquaintance on 7th Avenue. Turns out he too is looking for a two-bedroom apartment. We compared notes. Did you see the one with the refrigerator in the living room, he asked. <laughs> yes, indeed, I said. Well, he said, today I looked at a dentist's office in the East 50s. A dentist's office, I said. Was the chair still there? No, he replied, but there was a sink in every room. 
it sounded like a deal for someone. <laughs> Called real estate broker and inquired as to price of newly advertised co-op. Amount in substantial six figures. What about financing, I asked. Financing, she shuddered audibly. This is an all-cash building. I told her that to me, an all-cash building is what you put on Boardwalk or Park Place. <laughs> she suggested that I look further uptown. I replied that if I looked any further uptown, I'd have to take karate lessons. She thought that sounded like a good idea. Thursday, Wachung Co-op apartment, a recently deceased actor, by now so seasoned that I didn't bat an eye at the sink in the master bedroom. Assumed that either he was a dentist on the side, <laughs> or that it didn't fit in the bathroom. <laughs> Second assumption proved correct. Couldn't understand why, though. You'd think that there not being a shower in there would have left plenty of room for a sink. Real estate broker pointed out recent improvements. Tangerine colored kitchen appliances, bronze mirrored fireplace, a fun living room. Told the broker that what with the asking price, the maintenance, and the cost of unimproving, I couldn't afford to live there and still wear shoes on a regular basis. Called BF again. First the good news, a woman in his building died. Then the bad news, she decided not to move. Thank you. I'm now going to read this piece by Robert Benchley, and you'll really be able to see the parallels. Uh, this piece is called Art Revolution Number 4861. According to advice from Paris, if you want to take advice from such a notorious town, a new painter has emerged from the ateliers of Montparnasse who bids fair to revolutionize art. Art has been revolutionized so many times in the past 20 years that nothing short of complete annihilation can be considered even a fist fight. <laughs> to say nothing about a revolution, but it looks now, however, as if the trick finally had been turned. A French boy of 45 has done it. The artist in question is Jean-Baptiste Marceau Lavelle Raoul Duplay Rourke. During the Peninsular campaigns, a great many Irish troops settled in Paris, and the authorities were unable to get them out, hence the Rourke. He is a little man who has difficulty in breathing, not enough, however. <laughs> and not at all the type that you would think of as a great painter. In fact, he isn't. <laughs> but hidden away in the recesses of that small head is an idea which some say is destined to make a monkey out of art. Here is the idea. All art is relative, although all relatives are not art. <laughs> the gag is not mine, I am merely reporting. If we look at a chair or a table or an old shoebox of picnic lunch, what we see is not really a chair or table or shoebox full of picnic lunch, but a glove, a sponge, and a child's sand set. This much is obvious. Now, if art is to be anything at all in the expression of visual images, if, as someone has said, it is to hold nature up to the mirror, then we must, I am still quoting work, although I am thinking of stopping shortly, 
down on our canvas not the things that we see, but the things that see us? Or do I make myself clear? Perhaps the best way for us to study this new theory of painting is to put on our thinking caps and consider Work's famous painting, Mist on the Marshes. The committee of the French Academy refused to hang this picture because they said it wasn't accompanied by a stamped self-addressed envelope. And besides, it didn't have enough paint on it. <laughs> this, however, was an obvious subterfuge on the part of the committee. The fact was they didn't understand it, and in this world, what we don't understand, we don't believe in. And a very good rule it is, too. <laughs> if you examine the picture closely, you will see that it is really made up of three parts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. <laughs> the leg, which doesn't seem to belong to anybody, is mine, and I want it back, too, when you have finished looking at the picture. The pensive-looking old party who appears to be hanging on the cornice of a building, which isn't shown in the picture, is a self-portrait of the artist. He, has pa he painted it by holding a mirror in one hand and a harmonica in the other, <laughs> and then looking in the other direction. <laughs> in this way, he caught the feeling rather than the actual physical details. <laughs> now, as you will see, what we have here is not so much a picture as a feeling for beauty although the artist is still feeling for it. <laughs> it is quite possible that it may not be as far beyond his grasp as it seems. You can't go on feeling around like that without striking something, possibly oil. For example, a great many people resent the fried egg in the upper left-hand corner. They claim that it looks too much like the sun. On the other hand, sun worshipers claim that it looks too much like a fried egg. As a matter of fact, friends of the artist who caught him in a communicative mood one night when he was drunk report that it is really a badge of a parade marshal symbolizing the steady march of art toward the picnic grounds. Whatever it is, you cannot deny that it is in the upper left-hand corner of the picture. <laughs> and that is something. In the Surrealist School of Painting, of which Monsieur Rourke was a member until he was suspended for swimming in the pool when there was no water in it, there is an attempt to depict spirit in terms of matter and both spirit and matter in terms of a good absent bun. Thus, the laughing snake in the lower left-hand corner of Mist on the Marshes is merely a representation of the spirit of laughing snakes and has nothing to do with reality. This snake is laughing because he is really not in the picture at all. It also pleases him to see that snakes are coming back as figments of delirium tremens, for there was a time when they were considered very bad form. A good imaginative drunk five years ago would have been ashamed to see such old-fashioned apparitions as snakes, the fad of the time being little old men with long beards who stood in corners and jeered. Seeing snakes was held to be outmoded and fit only for comic characters in old copies of Puck. If you couldn't see little old men or at least waltzing beavers, you had better not see anything at all. But the Surrealists have brought back the snake, and this one is pretty tickled about it. After all, old friends are best. The crux of the whole picture, however, lies in the fireman who holds the center of the stage. As for the silk hat, the latter, the rather unpleasant unattached face, and the, and the arrow and target, they belong to another picture, which got placed by mistake on top of this one when the paint was still wet. <laughs> Mr. Rourke feels rather upset about this, but hopes you won't notice it.
a man who needs no introduction, Calvin Schilling. Thank you. I, I realize that in addition to uh, forgetting to mention the names of the readers, I forgot to mention that there's going to be a reception um, after this reading, and it's going to be pretty wild. Uh, I'm not going to read anything of Benchley's. He's dead, and I'm going to read this. I'm going to read my own stuff. Yeah. My wife keeps telling me that I don't really hate the neighbor of ours who talks a lot about the importance of trim and gutter maintenance. I've had this problem with my wife before. She is the person who insisted that I was only joking when I said several years ago that people who sell macrame ought to be dyed a natural color and hung out to dry. It is my wife who argued that I had no legal standing for making a citizen's arrest of someone for performing mime in public. <laughs> it's clearer than ever that she is to blame for the children's excessive tolerance. I haven't done any trim and gutter maintenance in so long that I'm no longer quite certain what there is about them that needs to be maintained. I also feel that way about the points and plugs on the car. I know they're important, but I can't quite remember just why. The same neighbor, he can be called Elwood here, although around the house I always refer to him as old glittering gutters, <laughs> cannot see my car without patting it on the hood as if it were an exceedingly large Airedale and saying, when was the last time you had a good look at the points and plugs? I'd rather not say, I always reply. It's none of his business. His points and plugs are, I'm sure, sharply pointed and firmly plugged in, or whatever they're supposed to be. His trim and gutters are, it goes without saying, carefully maintained. You could probably eat out of Elwood's gutters if that's the kind of person you were. I hate him. You don't really hate him, my wife said. You may think he's a little too well organized for your tastes. And you may not want him over for dinner all the time, but you don't hate him. Wrong. <laughs> Elwood has a list of what's in his basement. <laughs> he says that the list is invaluable. He wonders why I don't have a list of what's in my basement. He doesn't seem to understand that if I made such a list, it would have to be a list of what might be in my basement, and it would have to include the possibility of crocodiles. Elwood's list is cross-indexed. A man who has a cross-indexed list of what's in his basement is not a little too well organized. He's hateful. The other day, Elwood asked me what sort of system I use to label my circuit breakers. I tried to remain calm. <laughs> I made every effort to analyze this question in a manner detached enough to prevent physical violence. I tried to think of reasons why Elwood would assume that someone who had already confessed ignorance as to the whereabouts of his 1984 gasoline credit card receipts would have his circuit breakers labeled at all, let alone have them labeled according to some system. I calculated as precisely as I could what chance there was that a jury 
learning of the question that preceded the crime would bring in a verdict of not guilty on the grounds that the strangling of Elwood had clearly been a crime of passion. The system I'm using now, I finally said, is to label them sleepy, grumpy, <laughs> sneezy, happy, dopey, dock, and bashful. However, I've given a lot of thought to switching to a system under which I would label them dasher, dancer, <laughs> prancer, vixen, comet, cupid, donder, and bruce. I'm holding up my final decision until a friend of mine who has access to a large computer runs some probability studies. Probability of what, Elwood said. I noticed that as he asked the question, he retreated a step or two toward his own house. Just probability, I said. When I got back inside my own house, I told my wife about the conversation. Poor man, she said. He probably thinks you're dangerous. He may be right, I said. You have to try to think of Elwood as a human being, my wife said, someone with feelings and a wife and children who love him. I suspect his children perform mime or sell macrame in public, I said. Also, she said, it really wouldn't be such a bad idea to label the circuit breakers. I looked at her for a while. You're right, of course, I finally said. I got a felt tip pen, went to the circuit breaker box, and started right in. Sleepy, <laughs> grumpy, sneezy. Um, um, I, I, uh, I'm going to read one more short piece, and I, I brought a kind of a newish piece, but then um, I also brought, because uh, Fran and I read at the library years ago, and, and, um, and I read this piece, and I realized I hadn't read it for years, and it's a little, um, it's, it's not as old as the Benchley piece. It's about the same age as Fran's piece, really, I guess. Um, it was written in 1981, um, and it was called Dinner at the De La Rentas. Another week has passed without my being invited to the De La Rentas. Even that overstates my standing. Until I read in the New York Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago that Oscar and Francoise de la Renta had become barometers of what constitutes fashionable societies, society by creating a latter-day salon for Le Nouveau Grand Monde, the very rich, very powerful, and very gifted. I wasn't even aware of what I wasn't being invited to week after week. Once I knew, of course, it hurt. Every time the phone rang, I thought it might be Mrs. De La Renta with an invitation. Mr. Trillin, Francoise De La Renta here. We're having a few very rich, very powerful, <laughs> and or very gifted people over Sunday evening to celebrate Tishabov. And we thought you and the missus might like to join us. The phone rang. It was the lady from the diner's club informing me how quickly a person's credit rating can deteriorate. The phone rang. It was my mother calling from Kansas City to ask if I'm sure I sent a thank you note to my cousin Edna, 
for the place setting of stainless, Edna and six other cousins went in on for our wedding gift in 1965. <laughs> the phone rang, an invitation. Fats Goldberg, the pizza baron, asked if we'd like to bring the kids to his uptown branch Sunday night to sample the sort of pizza he regularly describes as a gourmet tap dance. Thanks, fat person, but I'll have to phone you, I said. We may have another engagement Sunday. The phone quit ringing. Why aren't I in Le Nouveau Grand Mon? I asked my wife, Alice. Because you speak French with a Kansas City accent? She asked in return. Not at all, I said. Sam Spiegel, the Hollywood producer, is a regular at the De Laurentiis. And I hear that the last time someone asked him to speak French, he said Gucci. Why would you want to go there anyway, Alice said. Didn't you read that the host is so phony he added his own de la to what had been plain old Oscar Renta? Who can blame a man for not wanting to go through life sounding like a taxi driver, I said. Family background's not important in Le Nouveau Grand Monde. Deanna Vreeland says Henry Kissinger is the star. The Vicomtesse de Rib says, Francoise worships intelligence. You get invited by accomplishment, taking over a perfume company maybe, or invading Cambodia. <laughs> Why don't we just call Fats and tell him we'll be there for a gourmet tap dance, Alice said. Maybe it would help if you started wearing dresses designed by Oscar de la Renta, I said. Some of the guests say they would feel disloyal downing Mrs. D's chicken fricassee while wearing someone else's merchandise. Alice shook her head. Oscar de la Renta designs those roughly dresses that look like what the fat girl made a bad mistake wearing to the prom, she said. Things were a lot easier when fashionable society was limited to old rich goyim. And all the rest of us didn't have to worry about being individually rejected, I said. At least they knew better than to mingle socially with their dressmakers, Alice said. <laughs> Would I be ready if the De La Rentas phoned? The novelist, Jerzy Kozinski, after all, told the Times that evenings with them were intellectually demanding. <laughs> Henry Kissinger, the star himself, said that the De La Rentas set an interesting intellectual standard. Although, come to think of it, that phrase could also be applied to Fats Goldberg. <laughs> Alone at the kitchen table, I began to polish my dinner table chit-chat, looking first to the person I imagined being seated on my left, the Vicomtesse de Ribe, who finds it charming that her name reminds me of barbecue joints in Kansas City. <laughs> and then to the person on my right, Barbara Walters, another regular, who has tried to put me at my ease by confessing that in French she doesn't do her R's terribly well. <laughs> I was encouraged when it leaked that the Reagan cabinet was going to be made up of successful managers from the world of business, I say, but I expected them all to be Japanese. Barbara and the Vicomtesse smile. Alice, who had just walked into the kitchen, looked concerned. Listen, Alice said. I read in the Times that Mrs. De La Renta is very strict about having only one of each sort of person at a dinner party. 
Maybe they already have someone from Kansas City. <laughs> Possible. Jersey Kosinski mentioned that Mrs. D is so careful about not including more than one stunning achiever from each walk of life. She understands that every profession generates a few princes or kings, he said. That he and Norman Mailer have never been at the De La Rentas on the same evening. When I arrive, Kosinski said, I like to think that as a novelist, I'm unique. Only one fabulous beauty, only one world-class clothes horse. Then I realized that the one of each rule could work to my advantage. As I envisioned it, Henry Kissinger phones to Mrs. D only an hour before dinner guests are to arrive. He had been scheduled to pick up 15 grand that night for explaining salt to the Vinyl Manufacturers Association convention in Chicago, but the airports are snowed in. He and Nancy will be able to come to dinner after all. How marvelous, darling, Mrs. D says. She hangs up and suddenly looks stricken. My God, she says to Oscar, what are we going to do? We already have one war criminal coming. <laughs> what to do except to phone the man who conflicts with the star and tell him the dinner had to be called off because Mr. D had come down with a painful skin disease known as the Seventh Avenue Spilkies. What to do about the one male place at the table now empty between Vicomtesse de Rib and Barbara Walters? The phone rings. This is Francoise de la Renta, the voice says. This is Calvin of the Trillin, I say. <laughs> I'll be right over. Thank you.